We're not in Kansas anymore. I feel like I'm a snow globe and someone shook me up and now every little piece of me is falling back randomly and nothing is ending up where it used to be. Amy Reed, crazy. Which of my feelings are real? Which of the me's is me? The wild, impulsive, chaotic, energetic, and crazy one? Or the shy, withdrawn, desperate, suicidal, doomed, and tired one? Probably a bit of both. Hopefully much that is neither. K. Redfield Jameson, An Unquiet Mind, A Memoir of Moods and Madness. Call it dysphoric mania, agitated depression, or a mixed state. Nobody will understand anyway. Mania and depression at once mean that the will to die and that the motivation to make it happen. This is why mixed states are the most dangerous periods of mood disorders. The tearfulness and racing thoughts happen. So do agitation and guilt, fatigue and morbidity, and dread. Walking late at night, trying to get murdered, happen. Trying to explain a bipolar mixed state is like trying to explain the Holy Trinity, three persons and one God. You just have to take it on faith when I tell you that the poles bend, cross, never snapping. Elisa Washuda, My Body is a Book of Rules. When you are mad, mad like this, you don't know it. Reality is what you see. When what you see shifts, departing from anyone else's reality, it's still reality to you. Maria Hornbacher, Madness, A Bipolar Life. Bipolar robs you of that which is you. It can take from the very core of your being and replace it with something that is completely opposite of who and, and what you truly are. Because my bipolar went untreated for so long, I spent many years looking in the mirror and seeing a person I did not recognize or understand. Not only did bipolar rob me of my sanity, but it robbed me of my ability to see beyond the space it dictated me to look. I no longer could tell reality from fantasy, and I walked in a world that was no longer my own. Alyssa Raines, Letters from a Bipolar Mother. Hello and welcome, GC. I'm Todd Lyons, and this is Toddcast Season 3, Episode 10, a show for and about public servants. The most potent descriptions of bipolar disorder aren't found in academic papers or professional texts like the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. They are the raw and personal accounts of persons who live with the condition every day. When you think about the quote you just heard from Kay Redfield Jameson, it's important to know that she is not only a person coping with bipolar disorder, 
and an author who writes about bipolar disorder, but is also a professor of psychiatry at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where she specializes in bipolar disorder. On this episode, a conversation with a public servant with similar perspective, who has both a PhD in psychology and the unique insight that only comes with experiencing the condition in her own life. So, let's start out by just having you introduce yourself. My name is Jessica Ward-King, and I hate the introduction part because it's, uh, it's not quite so straightforward. Um, I am currently an employee of the Canada School of Public Service. Um, before that, I was at the Department of National Defense. I have bipolar 2, uh, which is my, my claim to fame today. Um, but I also have a beautiful family, a son I love, and a wife who loves me beyond all odds, and a PhD in psychology, and uh, I love Star Trek. Well, that's great. Yeah, I know, right? I don't meet nearly enough people that are into... Uh, my wife just rolls her eyes and says, you know, go watch it with the, the kids. And even they, I don't know, they're getting to the point where they're liking... I have three daughters. And and for a while, I could get them to do Trek. And now it's kind of like, eh. Oh, Dad, that's so not cool. So, anyway, I really relished it while it while it lasted. <laughs> what is it like to, to have both the tools, both the education, like a PhD in psychology and the condition... And when did you have this realization that you had bipolar disorder? That was a long time in coming. And you'd think, I mean, I could, when I was, you know, even in my undergrad, I could rhyme off most of the diagnostic and statistics manual and tell you all of the symptoms and recognize it in others. And I couldn't see it in myself. Didn't want to see it in myself. Still had that stigma that people with mental illness are to be pitied, feared perhaps, um, but, but certainly not to be successful and intelligent. Um, so it took uh, the standard rock bottom approach um, when I found myself um, being admitted into hospital, psychiatric hospital, um, that I finally realized, hey, I, I'm not one of the innkeepers, I'm an inmate basically. And I always, uh, I, I think of it in my head, like, uh, one flew of the cuckoo's nest and I'm, I'm either nurse ratchet or I'm, you know, one of the inmates. And, and it took me that long to realize, like I'm looking from the inside out and thinking I'm, I'm actually, I have mental illness. And even then it was depression. Depression was safe because it's something that people have. And I even had a psychiatrist say to me, don't ever tell anyone you're bipolar. You don't want to be bipolar. Just stick with depression because it's less stigmatized. Um, but I, I mean, I realized I had bipolar disorder for real um, when I had an episode where I wasn't sleeping pretty much. I was one hour a night or so and on, on a hypomanic high. And I thought, no, this is enough. It's not just depression anymore. So this was a, I mean, a you know, years and years and years long process, at least 10 to 15 years before, like since the, the symptoms now in hindsight began before I finally got the diagnosis. Okay, and the official diagnosis, how old were you? Where in your educational pursuits did that sort of intersect? I already had the PhD. I was uh, doing my first, my first job, actually, um, and I was, I think, 29. Okay. Yeah. I'm still chewing on the whole, like, I'm familiar with the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders because... I'm a social worker. I work predominantly in mental health. So I, I, I'm aware of the ticky boxes where, yeah. okay, so many from this column and so many from that column to meet the diagnostic criteria. Yep. How did you manage to 
not see it for such an extended period of time, like 10 or 15 years of like, you know, until it really just could not be ignored anymore. It was just the rock bottom thing, like this could have gone on for even longer. I suspect it could have because I kept managing to to pull it all out in the end. Uh, so when I started my undergraduate degree, I my first year was kind of mental health wise a disaster. Um, but then you know I managed to to get on uh, medication for for migraines, for headaches, antidepressants, but they were for migraines, and uh, and that you know got me well enough to complete the the bachelor's degree with honors with you know the four GPA. So it. It, as long as I kept pulling it out in the end, being successful, I was able to, to say to myself, no, I can't. It must be something else. I can't, it can't be mental illness because people with mental illness can't be successful and smart. They just can't. It's, so it was, you know, there was that one tick, but like, nope, I'm successful. I, I'm smart. And so I just can't. It's so interesting that, that the stigma is so internalized even within you or as the person that you were. Yeah. That you felt such a strong impetus to take a, a distance and reclassify it as something else or normalize yourself because yeah, you you couldn't you couldn't be that person and still feel the same way about yourself. Correct. And when I finally you know did hit the rock bottom and got the you know the diagnosis and all the rest of it, that's the self stigma almost destroyed me because I said, well, okay, now I definitely do have mental illness. And so, therefore, I can't be successful and smart and all those things. And so then I wasn't anymore because I just couldn't be. It was really that strong. And, I mean, I've, I swear to God I'm intelligent. I swear to you. But it doesn't sound like it is, does it? I mean, you, how can you think that? But I really honestly did. And, and so when I was so highly self-stigmatized, that's where suicidal ideation came into it. That's where self-harm came into it because... Well, now I'm, I am a disgraceful, horrible human being. I was obviously the same person, but not in my mind. And therefore, I treated myself differently. I insisted others treat me differently to a certain extent. How long did that period last? That was about four or five years. And, I mean, it was even trying to find jobs. This was now getting out of the PhD and trying to find jobs. And I didn't think that I deserved a job I couldn't handle a job I no one should hire me so it was really really damaging uh even I was dating my my then girlfriend my now wife at the time and and I almost left her because I thought she deserved better than me um and it it really did almost destroy me several several times just the self stigma I got the PhD in this process I got the first job in this process but it was that sense that I just don't deserve anything to live was so overwhelming. So someone that's so intelligent with such high academic achievements, what sort of evidence do you need to prove to yourself that all of these suppositions, all of these biases that you held about yourself were false? How did you reinvent your, your self-perception? <sighs> That's a great question. I seem to think that the cognitions, the, 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 the thinking only followed when I started to get better. Um, that as long as I was so deep in, in, in my bipolar disorder, deep in depression most of the time, um, 
that I was never going to be able to think my way out of it. At least that's that's my sense. That's how I how I you know conceptualize it, and that it was only starting to get better from various treatments that I was able to look at it more objectively and be able to think about it in terms. I mean, because I could tell my friends and family members that had mental illness that they were still worthwhile that they could still be successful it was it was really really only applying to me um and it's it's amazing to me it's that it's a cognitive distortion right it's, yeah and it was so strong i know people tend to be the hardest on themselves than anyone around them but that's really extreme it it really was it really was and i never ever want to see that again so i worry if i relapse probably when i relapse what is that going to come back? That's my biggest fear. It's it's not even really the the illness or the medications. It's the it's the stigma, the self stigma. So, how many years of stability have you had up to the present moment? Two years. Two years. So it does feel like it's something that's that's very very close. What what works for you to to help keep you sort of even keel? What is actually working for me is uh, deep brain stimulation. So I was able to get in on this. Uh, it's, it was a clinical trial. Um, so I've got a, a battery pack that's implanted under just a, you know, under my breastbone, um, and then wires, two of them that go down into the middle of my brain, and I get a constant pulse, like almost like mini electric shock, um, constantly. And it was that that finally got me well. I actually I can remember the moment when I realized it was getting me well. I, I tasted food again. My wife had made, my son had fallen asleep. We were like, woohoo, it's going to be date night in the house. And my wife went in and, you know, whipped something up. I was getting the Netflix ready. And she came out with just a simple, you know, chicken curry with some naan bread. And I was saying, oh, my God, this is the best curry ever. Did you get this somewhere? Did you order in? This is so great. What did you put in it? She looked at me like I was an alien because um, she came out with one of those bags of pre-cooked chicken from you know from walmart that's got the five dollar sticker on it and a bag of pataks indian sauce and she'd thrown them in a pot and heated them up and got the naan bread out of the freezer i don't even know how long it had been in there and that was what i was just raving about because i could finally taste it what did food taste like you uh, before see this is the thing i thought it tasted like stuff before i did but then this this totally substandard meal to be honest sorry sorry to the wife but uh, this totally substandard meal suddenly tasted exquisite so i mean i could taste before i could see color i could all those things but this was like a, it was heightened so and, and it was only about a month on from there that things just started getting better and better and by the time i was at my you know my clinical follow-up my depression scores were normal so things have been better since about 2015. Yes. How long have you felt empowered to be able to to talk about your situation and and to start like I, I see that you have a GC Connects group. Yeah. Maybe you could tell me about that. Like, how did that begin? And and when did you sort of find your voice and decide I'm going to start talking about this and I'm going to create a platform for other people to talk about it? So I started talking about it actually when I was still feeling like like a piece, like a wreck. But um, I was teaching at a university, and one of our students died by suicide. And the students had begun to speak about, you know, that, that very day that we came back, um, you know, about how difficult it was and the pressures that were on them. And the kind of the, the edict came down from above, no one shall talk about suicide. 
this student died by drowning, please, out of respect for the family. And I snapped because the students immediately, they realized, oh, no, we're not allowed to talk about this. And they all clammed up. And I was, I said, no, 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 no. And I was kind of on contract at that point. And I thought, I have nothing to lose here. So I started to talk about it. Um, but when I, when I moved into a, a new department and I had moved out to the prairies and it was all brand new to me, I was still hesitant, but I thought, no, I've, I've got to, to try to do something. And uh, my management was incredibly supportive. They didn't know what to do with me at first, but we, were, we, we muddled through together. And I decided that, you know, I needed to, to be involved in mental health. My job had nothing to do with mental health, but I needed for it to have something to do with it. Um, and so GC Connects, easy, open platform, anyone can start something. And so I did and started talking to people mostly, you know, out there in the region where I was. And people, there's, there was a huge niche. There was a huge place. People wanted to talk about this stuff. It's starting to be, you know, trendy, as it were. And so very quickly, people started to get on there and started talking and posting resources. And, and so that was really important for me because there's not a centralized, at least as yet, not a centralized place to go. They're working on it. Um, but it's still very much a grassroots thing trying to work on mental health. There's still a lot of departments and a lot of offices that are, it's off the side of somebody's desk who's interested and, and that's a lot to, for someone to try to, to bear and to shoulder, especially if they don't have the resources or the support. So we really do need to band together um, to support each other in making this happen because it is, I mean, mental illness isn't new, no. but addressing it in the workplace uh, is still really quite new. I'm glad you said the word trendy because <laughs> it's, it's something that people have told me before. The beginning of this podcast sort of it coincides with Jenna Charette's uh, mm-hmm. clerk report to the Prime Minister, where she identified mental health as a priority, something that we needed to start talking about. Yeah. And then two months later, Toddcast. I have benefited, I think, from having these sorts of conversations in the wake of, a, of an official green light from the clerk. Yep. But I've also heard exactly what you've just said about well, how long can this last? This is the thing that we're that we're all excited about. But it needs to be much more serious than just a trend or a fad. Mm-hmm. How real does it feel that, that, that the conversations that we're able to have right now are something that, that we'll, we'll still be able to have in five or ten years? Or is this something that, that could pass us by and be replaced by, I don't know, some other priority? Well, I think that, I mean, things can't remain a priority forever. They can't remain, you know, trending, trending on Facebook, trending on Twitter forever. Um, it does take uh, a, a core group of dedicated people who are interested not only in the trend, not only in the, you know, the support uh, that, that may or may not be fleeting, but are actually committed to the cause. And I think with mental health, there is going to be that base. There already is that base. Um, because, I mean, we do all have mental health. We all have mental illness in our lives, whether it be from a, a coworker, a friend, a family member, or ourselves. Indeed. And so it's not like there are go- there's going to be any shortage of people who are in need of the kind of, of candor that we've finally got, um, the kind of, of services that we are finally, you know, creating and getting. Um, so I think it's going to be one of those things, like once it's there, it, it's not going to go away because it is so needed. I even, I think of the, the, the Federal Speakers Bureau on Mental Health. 
it was you know month, not not even months ago that that didn't even exist and all of a sudden it does and it is so needed it is booked people are booked up for months in advance and it's just an explosion and so I think the need is there and I don't think it's going to go away. It's kind of like I think of LGBTQ uh, plus rights. Um, being a lesbian woman myself, I've seen that become trendy and then sort of get less trendy as time has gone by. But there's so many LGBTQ plus people that it, I don't think it's going to go away either. Okay. So it's like letting it out of the closet. It's really hard to stuff it back in. That said, is it going to be the top of everybody's list of priorities forever? No, it won't be. That something else will come. I will settle for just normal, accepted, we don't talk about it, but that's because we talked about it so extensively and we've learned to see it in a different way. Well, this is it, yeah. What brought you to the public service? I was in academia. And what actually happened was I got a job at uh, the only university that is publicly uh, funded. That would be the Royal Military College of Canada. And so as a faculty member there, I became a public servant, just kind of by default. And once I had become this public servant, I never, I never really wanted to be a public servant. I wanted to be an academic. But once I'd gotten into the public service and seen you know, the different networks and the different way of working was completely different from, from real, you know, from um, bog standard academia. I was kind of hooked. I didn't ever want to go back to academia. I wanted to stay in the public service because there are people here that are so passionate and, you know, people that are doing things um, that are so, that are so innovative in a structure that, that hasn't historically been particularly, you know, innovative necessarily, but it's, but they're, they're really passionate about what they're doing now. And I saw that there was a place for me in there. And so I've, I'm, I'm now a mental health manager. I've never had that in my title before. I've always done it off the side of my desk and I've managed to create my own resume in mental health and come and be able to actually do this as my job. And that's something I just love about the public service. I've been able to innovate, even you know, despite the fact that there's a way that things are done. There, there's room to innovate here. And I really like that. Tell me what you think we need to do next. Like while it's still trendy, while it's still hot, where do we have to go? Who else needs to become part of the conversation? How do we reach this critical mass where a lot more people become convinced that it's safe and okay mm-hmm. for themselves to talk about what they're going through. People that were struggling with what you were struggling with, thinking, this can't be me, I can't say this, my job is at risk, mm-hmm. I'll lose respect, mm-hmm. you know, I'll get redlined in my job and no one will ever trust me to, to be able to do the difficult things again. I, I still think that's going to persist for quite some time, that, that risk to, to people's jobs or that risk to people's um, sense of self-respect. So how do we try to mitigate that? How do we try to attack that before, before the trend goes by? That's a great question. I would say that it's getting everyone engaged in the conversation. I'm a huge proponent of, um, well, like I say, making mental health positive spaces, of making places where, hey, I don't, maybe I don't have mental illness or mental health issues. Maybe I don't really know that many people with them, but I'm okay to talk about it. 
It doesn't freak me out. Stick a sticker on your door. I'm okay to talk about it. Um, it it's all based after, again, the, um, the positive spaces movement with the um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer community. They have this positive spaces where, you know, you just stick the, the sticker up on your door if you're okay with it and people can mention it. And just creating that climate where it's okay to say, yeah, you know, I'm not doing so well today. And, and that not, you know, to be able to say that to a colleague, to not necessarily management, to not necessarily EAP, but just to a colleague in passing as conversation. That's where we need to go. And there are so many people. I mean, everyone, as I say, everyone has some experience with mental illness and with mental health. Um, and so there's so many people that would would like to be able to to have those conversations if we can empower them to do it. How do we empower them to do it? That that might be the key. And it'll depend. Um, it depends very much on the person. It depends on the, on the environment. I've, I've spent a lot of time in national defense um, for the, the folks in uniform. It's a different formula than for folks that are not in uniform for how to talk about mental health. And I see that all over the public service. It's not just, you know, a civilian military difference. It's different how you talk about it when you're in, you know, a lawyer or when you're a policymaker. The higher up you are, the lower down you are. The younger you are, the more female you are, the more male you are. It's a different story. And so we just need people to take, to take upon themselves to say, it's okay to talk about this. And I think it will start to catch, like, you know, tinderbox. It will start to catch on fire if we can just set a couple of good flames. And so that's what I'm kind of working on now, is trying to get people talking. Just get them talking. Is it difficult to find supportive management? I've heard, I've heard on both sides today that, that sometimes, depending on where you are at the time, you have the person that you can begin that conversation with and other people have had to wait until they moved on because they just knew perfectly well that there's a person that that, that isn't that can't hear what you so desperately need to say yeah i mean that's managers get a get a bad rap for that i find it's just that's just people that's just if you can find the people to talk to management they do get some training but we can't expect that all of their biases or attitudes that they've grown up with are going to change because of, you know, a simple training. So, yes, they're in a position of responsibility and they, they do need to figure that out and become people that can listen to those concerns. But, it, you know, we, we shouldn't be too hard on them when they're, when they're still at it and they're still trying. If you can't talk to management, I mean, your, your, your line manager isn't the only option. Um, there can be other mentors within your your organization that you might be able to talk to. Um, in the in the meantime, it might be colleagues. It might be you know taking care of yourself until you can you can find the next manager that does understand. Unfortunately, that is still a reality. Any final thoughts you have to share? Whatever you do, just talk about mental health whenever you can if you're not sure of the words or of the accepted way we say things say it wrong as long as you're speaking with genuine concern and gen you know a, a genuine desire to start that conversation it very rarely goes badly 
So if someone's coming back from, you know, a return to work and you don't know what to say and you say it wrong, at least you said something. Say something rather than saying nothing. That's my last thought. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. You've been listening to Toddcast Season 3, Episode 10. All opinions expressed on Toddcast are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. My thanks to the members of the Toddcast team who loaned their voice talents to this episode. Dwight Coots, Kathleen Rukavana, and Rebecca Muse. Thanks also to Public Admin Canada, Free Agents, Abe Greenspoon, Gail Anderson, Deepika Grover, Catherine Jollymore, Joy Moscovich, Catherine Parker, Aaron Percival, Steph Percival, Amy Richardson, Eric Shoesmith, Mark Templin, and Darlene Marion for their support and contributions to the Toddcast community. You can support us too. Wherever you found us, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, social media, or on my website. Let us know you heard Toddcast, and please, help us to reach a little further... What am I saying? Help us to reach a whole lot further in getting meaningful content out to the public service of Canada. Become a subscriber, share the episodes, rate our content, and write. And let us know what's on your mind. You can reach me at Todd at toddlines.ca or start a conversation with your fellow listeners on the Toddcast group on GC Connects or visit our public satellite group on gccollab.ca. Toddcast is planned, written, and technically produced using free and open source software. Canboard, DocuWiki, and Audacity running on Kubuntu Linux and Linux Mint. Software that is free as in cost, but more importantly, free as in freedom. This episode's theme music was Epoch by John Luke Hefferman and is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial License. Toddcast content is free to use and share under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license because, like open source, open content and open licensing makes the world a better place. I'm Todd Lyons. I'll see you online.